Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. I'm your host, Ev, a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University. My research focuses on using gene therapy in nervous system disorders. Today, I'm talking with Dominique about a super interesting subject, especially with the recent controversies. If you haven't guessed it yet, I'm talking about Alzheimer's research. Before we get started, Dominique, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Hi, thank you for having me. So my name is Dominique. I'm a master's student in neuroscience at Queen's University, and I'm doing my research in ischemic stroke. I'm specifically looking at kind of like the mechanisms of damage and swelling and how we can limit it. Sounds really interesting. As you guys might already know, we're a group of graduate students that are putting together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. We're tackling a variety of topics relating to cutting-edge research and controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics related to the brain and human behavior. We'll talk to actual researchers and do our best to bring more nuance and rigor to neuroscience coverage. We're new to this, so please give us feedback. You can reach us at thinktwicepodcasts at outlook.com. I'm very excited about today's episode because we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's disease and recent news that came out this past summer about potentially fabricated results. The story has been all over the media, but what does it mean for Alzheimer's research? First of all, a bit of background. Dominique, can you tell us a bit more about Alzheimer's? Yeah, okay. So Alzheimer's disease is one of several types of dementia, and it's actually the most common type. So dementia is basically a term that encompasses a variety of diseases that impair someone's cognition, which means like their memory and their thinking. Uh, Other types of dementia actually include vascular dementia and Lewy body dementia. So actually, here's a fun fact. The word dementia comes from the Latin word demens, which means state out of mind, or to simplify it a little bit, it means out of one's mind. I always love a little bit of etymology. You said Alzheimer's is the most common, but just how common is it? And I'm assuming that since it's the most common one, it's also studied pretty extensively. Yeah, exactly. So Alzheimer's disease is a relatively well-known disease. It's highly recognized since many people know at least one person who has Alzheimer's. It's considered to be a disease of the aging population. Actually, I just looked this up. And about one in nine people aged 65 or older are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So, you know, it has a really high prevalence rate in the population. And this is actually really important to note since there's an increasing elderly population. So this means that there are going to be more individuals in the future diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And right now, the estimation is that in the next 30 years, the number of individuals diagnosed with Alzheimer's is going to triple. That's actually super interesting that you mentioned the rise in diagnosis. It's a trend that we're seeing across many diseases, some of which aren't actually linked to aging, just kind of like autism. And I always wonder if it's truly because there's a rise in the amount of people that have those disorders or if it's simply because we have better diagnostic tools. As a scientific community, we really strive to make diagnosis easier for physicians, and I'm wondering if what we're seeing is an increase in disease prevalence or those new diagnostic tools being applied. Could be both. Yeah, that's a really good point. So with Alzheimer's disease, scientists are currently looking at early disease markers and preventative therapies to work on earlier diagnosis and prevention. You know, in a class I took recently, we discussed potential new techniques that may be able to use blood samples rather than more invasive diagnosis tools like using cerebral spinal fluid uh, to test for Alzheimer's. 
This can go a really long way in aiding earlier diagnosis and allow for more people to get tested because it's way less invasive and a lot cheaper. You know, something I think that's really important to note is that aside from researching new diagnostic measures, a large portion of research is actually going into finding the root cause of the disease. As of right now, the primary cause of Alzheimer's is still pretty unknown. So this research is helping in the development of not only new ways to diagnose Alzheimer's, but also to develop new pharmaceuticals to come up with better therapies than are currently in place right now. From the way we've been talking about Alzheimer's disease since kind of the beginning of this podcast, we're making it sound like it's a recent disease, but my understanding is that it dates back quite a bit. Yes, people live older now, and this could potentially increase its prevalence, but Alzheimer's has been documented for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. So Alzheimer's, and specifically dementia, have been described in ancient history long before they received their official name in around like the 1900s. Dementia actually was mentioned as early as 500 BC, which means like 2,500 years ago. That's crazy. (laughs) In this time, dementia was actually noted by philosophers that were trying to describe like stages of human life, and they described the population and they use terms like cognitive decline and memory issues and other symptoms that we see in cases of dementia. Yeah that's crazy especially considering the average lifespan at that point in history. Yeah seriously though right and it's even discussed in famous plays in the 1500s. So one particular example is King Lear which is William Shakespeare. Woo! Love <laughs> Shakespeare! Woohoo! <laughs> okay sorry. I got sidetracked. I got too excited here. I love that. I'm sorry. (laughs) But in Shakespeare plays, his elderly characters are written in a way to kind of like portray dementia-like symptoms. That being said, it wasn't until later that dementia was kind of like recognized medically. So in the late 1790s, dementia was recognized as a medical term by two French physicians. I'm actually going to read out a quote about how they kind of describe dementia. So Bear with me. Okay, so they said dementias are, quote, disabilities that are shown in discernment, intellectual ability, and will do to brain diseases. And it's to lose joyfulness enjoyed, and is that the rich become poor. So if I kind of break down this quote, it really speaks to cognitive decline seen in individuals with Alzheimer's and how they kind of lose themselves in the disease. In the later stages of dementia, people often forget who they are and they forget their loved ones. So when this quote says they lose joyfulness and the rich become poor, it's really speaking to this loss of self that's seen in this disease. Yeah, that's a really powerful quote. So far, all we've been talking about really is dementia in general. But what about Alzheimer's? Right, okay, so Alzheimer's got its discovery a lot later, actually in the early 1900s, which is a lot more recent than you'd think. It was this German psychiatrist named Dr. Alois Alzheimer's, go figure, right? Dr. Alzheimer had a patient named Augusta Dester who came to him because of her symptoms of memory loss, difficulty speaking and writing, and some behavioral or like mood changes which we actually now know these as symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So Dr. Alzheimer's admitted this patient to the hospital and monitored her changes and progression of her symptoms until she passed away five years later. After she passed, Dr. Alzheimer then examined her brain, and this is actually when he found out what we consider to be the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So like a decrease in brain mass, extracellular plaques, and intracellular tangles. So from here, the name Alzheimer's was actually assigned to this condition, and research specific to Alzheimer's began. So really, Alzheimer's has only been highly researched in the past 100 years or so, with lots of research aimed at discovering the mechanisms of disease, as well as its like root cause. So we talked about some etymology, some Shakespearean plays, and some general background on Alzheimer's disease. But what I'm interested in is the controversy, and how exactly we got to that point. 
Yeah, so since Alzheimer's disease was initially discovered by Dr. Alzheimer, the majority of the theories around kind of the pathology of the disease have been centered around these plaques and tangles that Dr. Alzheimer found in the brain of his patients. So in the 1980s, the specific protein that actually makes up these plaques was discovered, and it's known as beta amyloid. So this protein comes from a precursor protein that can be found in the brains of both healthy individuals and people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Since this is one of the main molecules that has been found to be implicated in Alzheimer's disease, a lot of research has gone into figuring out how this beta amyloid plaque is actually formed in the brain and what mechanisms of disease it's actually responsible for. And a lot of researchers believe that this beta amyloid is one of the key players in the onset of Alzheimer's and the progression of the disease. Right. And my understanding is that this hypothesis was reinforced a lot by the discovery of genetic forms of Alzheimer's. Yeah. So mutations in the gene for APP, which is this amyloid precursor protein, actually supports the theory that this amyloid beta protein is linked to the onset and progression of Alzheimer's. Eventually, this all led to the development of a key theory in Alzheimer's research, which is known as the amyloid cascade hypothesis. So the core of this theory is that when the amyloid precursor protein forms this toxic beta amyloid, this beta amyloid protein then kind of triggers this cascade of events that leads to plaque formation and then other kind of pathological hallmarks that we see in Alzheimer's, like neural tissue inflammation. And then, you know, you see these symptoms that are present in Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's a hypothesis that's pretty widely accepted, even now. Since its initial development, it's been used as a starting point for a lot of research, and a large number of drug-related research has stemmed from targeting amyloid beta protein. Sure, the theory has been modified with new information stemming from research over the years, but it's still one of the main hypotheses about Alzheimer's that's believed by a large number of scientists. Absolutely, and like you said, it's been modified to accommodate these new findings. As more research on Alzheimer's pathology has been published, actually a new molecule has gained some traction as like the center of this amyloid cascade hypothesis. So in the early 2000s, the amyloid cascade hypothesis was expanded to include something called oligomers. So these oligomers come from the exact same beta amyloid protein, but they're a different conformation. So while the beta amyloids that were initially being researched were more of this like fibril shaped, so these like long tubes, these new oligomers are smaller and more soluble monomers. So this leads to the oligomers being a lot more toxic than these like fibrils at the exact same concentration. Not only are they more toxic, but they're actually more prevalent in the brains of individuals with Alzheimer's disease. Right, and because they're soluble, they're kind of able to move around freely throughout the brain and disrupt a bunch of neuronal processes in a bunch of different regions of the brain. Yes, exactly. So they're known to cause problems in synaptic signaling and are most likely the cause of these memory deficits because they're soluble and they can migrate. So their migration is actually thought to be this key player in the progression of Alzheimer's disease through the brain. It's pretty obvious why, with all those findings that add up, oligomers became the new hype in Alzheimer's research. Since then, they've been extensively researched and very prominent research articles have been written on the subject. There's one in particular that I can think of that we have heard a ton about in the past years because of, let's say, major red flags. And what makes it so much worse is that even in 2023, this is still the most cited paper published in the field of Alzheimer's disease and amyloid or oligomers. It's been cited over 2,000 times. Can you tell me about this controversial article? Yes, of course. Let's talk about this controversy that we've been leading up to. 
So in the mid-2000s, a high-impact paper on these oligomers was published in Nature. So this actually had a huge influence on the field of Alzheimer's research, and this paper claimed that they had discovered a new oligomer named beta-amyloid star 56. And the most important aspect of this paper was that these researchers demonstrated that in rodent models, this amyloid beta star 56 was capable of causing Alzheimer's disease. Right, and that was important because the scientific community really didn't know if oligomers or amyloid plaques were actually a cause or a result of Alzheimer's. So that was really a crucial finding. Yeah, exactly. This was the first time that there was actually concrete evidence for like kind of like a starting point for Alzheimer's disease pathology and the disease progression. So this amyloid beta star 56 was the first molecule shown to like cause Alzheimer's disease. And this really aided the research in the field because it supported the amyloid cascade hypothesis. And this was the first bit of evidence to like demonstrate what this cascade had been speculating. So amyloid beta star 56, this paper, became kind of like a background and foundation for a lot of research that came out and provided a lot of direction for research questions for scientists to pursue. However, some issues kind of regarding this paper came out this past summer in 2022. This is 16 years after the initial Nature publication came out. 16 years? That's a crazy amount of time to notice that something was up. How did they eventually figure out something was fishy? So it started with this drug that had been approved for Alzheimer's disease treatment, and it was approved by the FDA, but it was receiving a lot of backlash. So people were questioning the research behind this drug and why a drug with like this mechanism was actually being chosen. So researchers stated that their own research was contradicting this drug as an anti-amyloid treatment. And with all this coming to light, some scientists took it upon themselves to do research and dive and do like a literature review that was looking into the like backing of this drug. So they were looking for evidence as to why this drug should be taken off the market and not used as an Alzheimer's treatment anymore. So they were looking in errors in publication and kind of trying to find ways to disprove the efficacy of this drug. And this led to the review of that Nature paper. Yeah. So in this paper, this fancy Nature paper, it was discovered that some of the images had actually been edited. So specifically, some of the images of the Western blots that were demonstrating this beta amyloid star 56 that actually induced Alzheimer's disease in rodents, it was edited to kind of like show this result. So these alterations were described as either duplicate images, so they were putting protein markings where they weren't originally, to kind of prove that this amyloid beta star 56 was playing a role in Alzheimer's disease. But yeah, you know, like... Since claiming that someone edited their data is a really big deal, they brought in some other image analysts to vet this original scientist, like what he found. And these analysts all agreed that some of these images in the paper were manipulated from their original state. As sad as that is, it's interesting to me that the only reason we know about this now is because researchers were trying to disprove the mechanism of a drug they thought would be inefficient for Alzheimer's. I also imagine that the author was under investigation after that. Yeah, all their other publications from this lab were investigated for similar issues, and some of their publications actually showed the same image editing of their Western blots. So they actually reused the same images, claiming they were new discoveries and duplicated columns, so it was a really big thing. That's really insane. It goes against pretty much everything we're taught in grad school. Seriously. And it really put into question whether this amyloid beta star 56 was really as important to Alzheimer's as it was originally thought. So some scientists have actually come out since and said they hadn't been able to replicate this data in their own lab, but they were kind of hesitant to publish this because it was negative data and it was contradicting such a big impact paper. 
Yeah, there's a huge stigma around publishing negative results. And honestly, unless you have a good way or a good reason to explain it, it's pretty hard to get it published anyways. Nobody wants to publish something that's not quote unquote hot. You know, just to think about how much this is set back research on Alzheimer's disease. And all those researchers using that paper as a source to further their investigations on Alzheimer's. I can't even imagine the frustration. Yeah, it definitely must be really frustrating. But this isn't to say that all Alzheimer's research since then has been incorrect, just because they've cited this paper. You know, oligomers have been demonstrated to be a really important player in the field of Alzheimer's research and has been supported extensively by this research. It's really just this one molecule, the amyloid beta star 56, that's being questioned. Well, yeah, that and the whole scientific community, really. Um, I think we can all agree that this is a humongous issue of scientific integrity and can really lead to losing trust. At the end of the day, what we publish should reflect the data. Otherwise, all we're causing is issues. And when a story like that comes out, not only is it the general population that becomes skeptical of research, but other researchers too. As a young scientist myself, I really do always question if the sources I'm using are reputable. And if we have to go down a rabbit hole every time and investigate on all the papers that are out there, not only is it a huge waste of time, but it's also a waste of resources. I like to think that for the most part, researchers are good and ethical, but it's difficult to just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. And quite frankly, I don't think we should. As bad as this whole story is, it may actually help science. Yeah, I agree with that. I think this coming out will have some interesting impacts on the future of Alzheimer's research. It also opens the door for other areas of Alzheimer's research to get more attention and resources and funding. You know, there are plenty of other things to look at in terms of the disease, like neuroinflammation, immune system activation, among everything else. And I think from this, we will, you know, like see the focus being diverted to other areas of Alzheimer's disease, which are equally as important. And, you know, they really could lead to maintenance therapies for individuals who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Hopefully this ordeal is not all negative and we see some new target molecules, some new mechanisms of pathology and new and improved treatment options. But I mean, obviously that means the scientific community as a whole needs to be more transparent with its findings you know like really take this as an opportunity to improve that would definitely be nice i think the more we get a global view of alzheimer's disease or really any other disease the better the outcome is and you're right transparency definitely is key I know we just talked about this, but can we talk a little bit about the massive publication bias towards positive results? I think there's quite a bit of room for improvement on this topic. Oh yeah, for sure. One of the biggest things in terms of publication bias is the idea of publishing negative results. You know, as a young scientist myself, I've heard how hard it is to publish negative results. Scientists are told that you know, negative results don't get published. It's because journals don't find these results as exciting. So, you know, scientists are just not submitting them anymore. But this is such a backwards way of thinking. You know, negative results have such a great importance. And we can see this specifically in this case. You know, if people were publishing negative results and refuting the findings from this nature publication, we could have shown the discrepancy in this research earlier. This is so important because, you know, it really helps complete stories in terms of research because there's always more than one answer to a scientific question that researchers are looking into. And the stories are not as simple as we see just in one publication. So I think opening the door to scientists publishing negative data will allow for these more complete full stories on disease mechanisms to be put out there. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think we can both agree that journals allowing negative findings to be published would also allow researchers freedom and improve their probability of getting external funding from government agencies. This would in turn help improve scientific integrity since researchers really don't feel that pressure anymore to publish those positive results. And it'll also take a very large weight off of students who are expected to publish data to get competitive external funding. If you can publish negative results, which are just as important as positive ones, you actually get an article after two or three years of extensive research, maybe even in a high-impact journal. Gosh, that's a whole other topic. Another issue that arises in terms of publication bias is actually the fact that high-impact journals like Nature, Science, Cell, they tend to only want to publish things that are quote-unquote hot topics, meaning that the research that they want to publish has never been done before, you know, like this hot-off-the-press novel idea. Because this does allow for new and exciting research to come out in each edition of the journal, which is why so many people know of these high-impact journals. But the flip side is, you know, like, novel research can sometimes mean that the research isn't fully backed or it's not showing a complete story. Since it's usually the first time that this topic is being investigated, there really isn't anyone who's replicated the study yet. And this replication is incredibly important for credibility because it helps prove that the research being conducted can get the same result multiple times. So, basically... We need to do better. We need diversification of funded research topics, transparency and reproductibility in results, publish negative data, and integrity, integrity, integrity. Don't forget the integrity. On that note, thank you for spending some time with me today, Dominique. I hope our listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice. Thank you to the Outreach Program at the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. Now, before we wrap up this episode, Brain Awareness Week is coming up and we'd like to get you guys involved. If you would like to share your knowledge and your opinions about the brain and about neuroscience in general, click the link in the episode description and share your ideas in our mini survey. If you're interested in being featured in the podcast, let us know there and who knows, you might just become our next podcast star. On that note, see you next time.